Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 48. First, a little house cleaning. This is week two of our attempt to use videos. Last week was okay. Uh, I just wanted to put out a little disclaimer because as we switch to videos, we can't edit nearly as much. We can't make things as tight. We can't make things as fast. There's going to be a little bit of a curve here while we get used to, well, having the unfortunate fact that we just have to keep going onward and onward, even when people walk into the room and things like that. And I would love to be in a studio recording this one day, but not today. I'd love to be in the same room as Brad, but again, not today. <laughs> but the reason we're switching to, to video like this, the primary reason is obviously because we want to have conversations with other people. Those conversations obviously are better with video, and that's the goal. And here so, we are. pressing forward. Right. Moving onward with our development of skills and a podcast. Thanks for hanging with us. And for those of you who have contributed to us on Patreon, thank you, thank you, thank you. We really do appreciate it, guys. Right. It, uh, it, it puts a fire on us to get moving and do things like this. Keep so pushing forward. Progress and do everything we can, which is still not much, but is something. <laughs> not much and not competently, but, but we, we attempt it. So the other thing is YouTube. Uh, if you, I mentioned it last time, if you want to watch the videos, YouTube is the place where they're going to be right now. We're probably going to put them up on other places as well in the near future. Uh, you know, competitors of YouTube that may or may not be successful, probably won't be, I mean, given the odds, but, but just in case. Um, and YouTube has an advantage of that things that are watched there obviously get, can get picked up by the algorithms and things and can go viral. Um, already, I've been surprised as we uploaded old episodes, how many people have have picked up random ones like uh, like the the Kenosha shooting episode from some time ago. Yeah, that was episode and 12. Made it was a long comments time ago. <laughs> it was episode 12? Episode that's 12. forever ago. It was that's like seven months that's ago a long when time we recorded ago. it, yeah. Yeah, apparently still, a lot of people still want to debate it. And uh, anyway, that gives us an opportunity on YouTube that is uh, much harder to find on places like Facebook for things to go viral and for things to spread. Um, so we're optimistic about that. And if you want to give us a, a like on these videos as we, we put them out, that could be helpful. As far as today's episode goes, um, I, I stumbled into this news. It was not something that was talked about much. Uh, people maybe mentioned it if you listen to, to particular news outlets. Um, but it's extremely relevant, and I think it paints a very clear picture of a, of a problem and a disconnect between philosophy and between, uh, you, know, you know, consistent political moral theory and the practice of it. And we, are, we hit that again and again and again because the idea is that there are clear principles and clear lines that can be drawn, which, if applied, provide you a consistent basis from which to work and from which to think about politics, to interpret the world, and to act morally, because that matters. Mm -hmm. And moral action aligns with practical action. The things that are moral and the things that are effective are one and the same. Um, and only occasionally are there prudential considerations where, where you can't do the thing that is moral, um, physically can't. There's you know, too big a threat or whatever, and you have to do something less. But those are few and far between. And in general, the goal should be to act morally and justly and to use the force, to use force appropriately, force being the counterbalance of justice. And a theory of natural rights is the most useful lens 
to establish that. It's the most useful way thus far that people have thought of to, to put these ideas into practice and to articulate them in a manner that's consistent and gives you a vision of the world that you can apply. Which makes the UN and what has happened in China, the, the resolutions of, of the US, Great Britain, England, whatever you want to call it at this point in time, and Canada, Canada being actually the, the spokespeople for this joint resolution, they recently were censoring, uh, censoring as in chastising, China, and a number of countries signed on. I've seen uh, varying numbers, uh, depending on what you mean by signed on. There's, there's supported <laughs> it, there's signed on, there's actually wrote it and, and participated in it. And, and the distinctions in the UN, I'm not, not precisely sure how it functions. It doesn't particularly matter. And then China fires back, and even more people supported China firing back. Even more people, not in terms of raw numbers. I don't know even, what the raw even numbers more breakdown would be. More countries, which is generally how votes and things are tallied in the, in the UN. Of course, big, certain countries have more votes, more influence, and so on. But the point is that it's a, it is a PR battle. It is a, a political battle on a global scale, and the subject matter is human rights. Specifically, they're talking about what happened in China with the Uyghurs, with Hong Kong, and with uh, the current state of how they're treating people. I mean, t Taiwan is going to come up. It's not, uh, it's kind of in the background right now. Um, what happened in Tibet is old news at this point, but relevant. And we've been reading a bunch of Chinese news, and it's been a lot of fun. It's been surprisingly, surprisingly fun. I don't know how I haven't spent a lot of time reading Chinese news, obviously not in Chinese. I wish I were that. I wish I could speak Mandarin. But it's been, it's been as a, as a follow-up to 19, our 1984 episode, it's been really interesting. Yeah, to, to read news articles not about China, but actually written from a Chinese perspective is a very different experience and definitely very interesting. Yeah, they, uh, in the articles, one of the common themes in them, if you, I've been looking specifically at the Global Times. If you look up the Global Times and the UN Joint Resolution, uh, you'll stumble onto some of these ones we've been looking at. And they're always, they always do a couple of different things. First, they say, we are not violating human rights. They deny the allegation. We are, we are acting within our constitutional rights. We're not doing the things that they're accusing of them, us of, or to the degree that we are, they're not violations of human rights. Mm -hmm. And to the degree that they are violations of human rights, those human rights are subject to the cultures and are not universal human rights. But then they turn it back and they go, look at America's history. And they draw upon the debate that we have within America right now about things like slavery and specifically the way we've treated American Indians. And to, to say that they're second-class citizens and to this day they're treated poorly and Canada as well and Great Britain with their colonialism and, and all of these, you can, you can see how they would tap into our internal debates and turn the argument on its head and say, who are you to critique us? Mm -hmm. And they start to accuse us and they actually called for an investigation into, you know, at the UN as a, as a political tactic to try and look into 
what the U.S. and what Canada specifically, because Canada was the face of this, and how they're treating people. <laughs> it's just, mm-hmm. just interesting to see it turned on its head so quickly, to see the same allegations thrown back. No, and that's, and that's definitely an, an, an effective tactic because they're absolutely right. I mean, whether you're talking about the United States, yeah. Canada, or Great Britain, no one has a clean track record. I mean, the United States and Great Britain especially have had, have had terrible, terrible track records. Honestly, I don't know enough about Canada to know their track record, but considering what I know about any country, my guess is it's not the best. <laughs> right, you can bet that somewhere in there there are skeletons. But but to be honest, Dan, the idea of of China fighting back by saying, "Well, look what you've done in the past," to me seems passé. That seems inevitable almost. I mean, that's a pretty typical response. What I found fascinating, especially in this this Global Times article that you stumbled upon and and shared with me, is is their discussion of what human rights even means. You know, um, mm-hmm. the, I want to read this paragraph real quick from from this Global Times article. And it's, I don't know if the article was originally written in Chinese and then translated or if it was originally written in English by a Chinese speaker who's, you know, English is their second language because you can tell that the, the wording is a little bit odd. So, so bear with them. Um, but I want to read this quote. The fundamental... Yeah, in the language... What was that? I was just going to say the language. The language really plays into what we were feeling when we were reading 1984, in part because it's not as it's not the normal terms that an, a native English speaker would use. Mm-hmm. So you'll hear that as he reads the quote. Quote, the fundamental reason, and he's talking about the the reason why why there this proposal against China, this censoring of China will be ineffective. I'll continue with the quote. I should have just let it be. Quote, the fundamental reason (laughs) is because their definition of human rights is narrow and West-centered, and they have tried outrageously to make their definition universal, which is in stark contrast to the reality of developing countries. This poses a realistic threat and challenge to those countries' order and development pace. Such being the case, it has sparked dissatisfaction and been inevitably resisted by people around the world. And that is fundamentally their their main argument in at least this article, which is an editorial from the Global Times, an, an opinion piece. And it's that the United States has their view of what human rights is, and that's just fine for the United States. But we have a different view of what human rights are, and human rights are an, are not universal. The United States may think they're universal, but they're not. It's just it's just a characteristic of what the West is, and that's fine for the West, but that doesn't mean that it's universal. And and this is going to play really well in today's political climate as ideas like multiculturalism have really taken off, the idea is is that you need to respect other people's culture and that other people's culture is every bit as valid as your culture, which on its surface seems pretty fine. On its surface, respecting other people's culture is something I completely agree with. I completely agree with. The problem is when you take that 
multiculturalism to the next level, which is what's happening here and what which is what almost inevitably happens with multiculturalism, which is to say that all cultures are equal and it's it's more than that though. It's more than that, Dan. It's more than that all cultures are equal. It's that there are no universal principles at all. There's simply different lived experiences on a worldwide basis. That my lived experience is different from your lived experience. That my perspective on human rights is just as valid as your perspective on human rights. And the problem with that, the problem with that is that China can can arrest a million of the Uyghur population and put them in re-education camps. So we're talking a serious human rights violation. And and they say this is just this is what human rights means to us. You know, there was extremism right. in this area and so we uprooted the problem. Those were their words in this article. They just simply uprooted the problem. They took care of the problem yeah. because there were threats of terrorism and extremism and that's and in their mind they're defending human rights. Which is fascinating. It really is fascinating, Dan. It is. It is. And that that language, I mean, you can you can get on board with that very easily. You can say, look, this this group of people have never integrated. There's you know, you can you can approach it from the the philosophy kind of from the Republican perspective of this group isn't integrating. We have to force them to integrate. Or you could say uh, something like because of the threat to our security that they present. When because of their dangerous ideas and philosophy, kind of free speech is not that important, given that this that their speech is is building extremism and building uh, the kind of people who are going to push back against our society, which is kind of the, the, an argument you hear from Democrats in America against certain people. Um, and they take both; they 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 grab onto both, whichever whatever weapon to justify their action is fine for them. And they make an appeal that is very hard for America in any sense to unite against because we're so split on it and how we apply these ideas in our own country. And they use it in a utilitarian way to say, we're doing this because there is a real problem. And who are you to say we can't solve that problem and solve the problem at its root? Mm-hmm. Like we, could, we could try and, and chip away at the people, you know, wait for people to actually commit crimes. But that doesn't solve the long-term problem. That doesn't actually address it at its root. We're addressing it at its root. And there's nothing wrong with that. This is a threat to society. We're solving it. And in the face of that argument, I don't think America, in some holistic sense, in, in how we practice our political principles and things, can say much at all. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. we do that. We do that. When we talk about human rights as a universal thing, uh, a human right, how critical is that right? How, to what degree are rights inviolable? Yeah, and, and the United States has always been very clear on that for a long time in that if you're a U.S. citizen, then you have certain rights. You have certain human rights and if you're not a U.S. citizen, then you have certain human rights, but you have less of them. And 
which means that in the United States' eyes, there are human rights and then there are U.S. citizen rights. You know, if <clears throat> if you are a U.S. citizen, then you cannot be incarcerated without some form of due process. If you're not a U.S. citizen, that is no longer the case. You know, I mean, <laughs> the, the number of people who have been incarcerated and held for long periods of time is is well known. And in fact, they took it one step farther in the last 20 years with the war on terror and said, actually, if you're a U.S. citizen, but we believe you're involved in some form of terrorism, we no longer need due process and started making all of these exceptions to to that rule. Now, the thing is, is that's not a new concept. A lot of people think that the last 20 years has been new with this war on terror. And I disagree. I think the only thing that's different about the last 20 years is that we've been able to pull this off without a full-blown war. You know, I I think it goes back it goes back a long time, at least to the Civil War when when Abraham Lincoln, you know, he suspended the writ of habeas corpus, which was a huge part of due process at the time, and because of that you had 13,000 U.S. citizens who were living in the North. So this is not the South. This is not the states that were in rebellion, but Northern citizens who were arrested and held without being charged. And a lot of mm-hmm. these people were where you had you had newspaper editors who were speaking out against the war. You had, uh, in fact, you had state congressmen. It was the at one point the entire legislature of the state of Maryland was temporarily arrested in order to stop them from potentially seceding after the war had been going on for a while or at least abstaining or whatever they were going to do. It was not good for the continuation of the war, and so it was simply stopped. And then this process has continued on since then. You look at World War II. Um, World War II, you had the Japanese internment camps where we took Japanese-American U.S. citizens and and arrested them because of their race and because of their – well, not their race, their ethnicity, because they, they were of Japanese descent. And we arrested them and held them in these internment camps until the war was over without cause, without anything. Right, no individual assessment yes, of them is a threat. Exactly, it was, it was just the group. It was exactly. I mean, the only difference between that and what happened in in Nazi Germany is that they weren't killed and tortured. You know what I mean? But the fact that they were arrested right, right. just like Jews were in Germany is is a disturbing parallel. But but the fact right, of the matter is, their freedoms is that, were curtailed. Is that the United States has consistently done what China has, which is said when. It stands in everyone's interest. We have no problem with mass arrests. We have no problem with suspending due process. We have no problem with suspending these human rights that we're such a fan of if the cause is good enough, you know, if it's justified. And it's interesting that China is concerned about terrorism because that's literally the excuse that the United States has used for the past 20 years in order to suspend people's human rights. I mean, you go back to the, you know, the the scandals with the uh the waterboarding and the, you know, the torture report that came out that that went on for years and years 
and it was all in the name of protecting the United States from terrorism. Right, right. There's a there's a, some interesting legal history here that really illustrates this. And it's the development of what's called substantive due process. So the idea of due process, which you mentioned, um, was not uh, – initially it was did you go through the process or did they bypass the process and just punish you? A street execution with no trial skips the process, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> that, that has always been something that isn't okay, even though people like Abraham Lincoln suspended it. But the substantive due process is the claim that there are certain processes which in themselves are necessary for justice and in a substantive way. But as you, when you, if you look at Supreme Court cases on this that it, across time, what ends up happening is they end up concluding that, that these interests, just like the interests of other natural rights, uh, of other rights that are listed in the Constitution, must be balanced with the risk and with threats and with potential good for society mm-hmm. and these other things to where your human rights are not inviolable. They're merely an important factor to consider, and you have to have a good reason to violate mm-hmm. them. It, it puts a bar, yes, but the bar is not that high. It's not that high, as manifest by, well, if you're, from Jap- if you're of Japanese descent, your freedom is completely eliminated during this period of time. You were, you were sent to these camps. I mean, they had some autonomy. This, wasn't a, this certainly wasn't a German concentration camp, as you said, nor, nor uh, in a number of other examples you could point to. But it was certainly a massive violation of their rights based on their ethnicity, based on, based on a perceived risk that might threaten society. Yeah, and, and, and just to re- uh, clarify from earlier, I wasn't trying to imply that it was the same as the as the the concentration. No, you made camps. it clear it wasn't. It's just just that there were some some disturbing parallels. But obviously, the Japanese internment camps were much more humane. But it doesn't change the fact that it happened. Right, and there was some attempts at, at remuneration at the end, where they tried to. It, there were lawsuits and things to pay them money to, you know, to make up for this and things like that. But, but none of that, none of that justified the initial violation. None of that justified saying, yes, you have a right to liberty, but, you know, your liberty could be a threat based on some assessment we've made. Could be a threat, right? This is potential. This is, and we have no details specifically about you other than that you fit into this broad category. And so for the, for the safety of everyone else, so everyone else can feel secure, your freedom is taken. Well, and and you can go back to to the founding of the United States and and the the Constitutional Convention and the creation of the United States Constitution, and there were there were many abolitionists who were there at the time who were very upset about slavery in the United States and wanted to do something about that with this Constitution and proposed that that there be either an abolition or some kind of something done to address this. And, and the reason they didn't is, is largely because of the representation from those Southern states and the understanding that if they didn't protect slavery in those Southern states, then the Southern states would never agree to a constitution. And they said, okay, Mm -hmm. we accept that they view things differently 
And so we're going to to allow that for the greater good. You know, we want this constitution to be formed, and so we're going to explicitly protect slavery for a certain number of years in the constitution, which is something people have a very hard time with. You know, looking back at <laughs> they sure at they this, sure do at this text that that is supposed to be this embodiment of freedom where it explicitly protects the practice of slavery. And and that's that same thing you're talking about, Dan, where you're looking at the utilitarian perspective where where these men as they're coming forward uh, not coming forward, where these men as they're as they're meeting and having this this convention and this huge moment in history deciding that the best thing to do is to compromise and is to is to look at the utilitarianism of it and look at the fact that even though they may not agree with slavery that it's worth protecting temporarily and i think a lot of people are going to argue both ways on that issue uh-huh but it's worth bringing up but this is something that the us has done from the very beginning from the very beginning right 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 it's the way that uh the way that human rights should work and the way that we we would argue human rights work is that to violate human rights other than in a defensive manner is unjust obviously you can violate the human rights of someone who is doing something unjust and to violate the rights of someone who isn't is wrong and that it's that that is the moral line that if you were a threat to, if you were not, not if you were a threat, excuse me, if you are threatening or you are actually harming someone else, then there is a place for us to say you're, you are use, exercising your freedom to harm others or to hinder other people's freedom. Thus, in a defensive manner, your rights, your freedoms are curtailed. But it's in response to that threat. It's in response to that harm. That's not what the U.S. is suggesting, and that's not what China, it's certainly not what China is defending. Mm -hmm. That viewpoint is actually not present here, even though the U.S. seems to be asserting that. They seem to be taking the stance that there are universal human rights, but how binding are those universal human rights? Not particularly binding. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, is that what it's called? The famous one that the UN actually requires, yeah, the UN requires you to sign on to. China's actually signed it. You'll note that it includes things like, uh, it, it includes a lot of things that go beyond what we were just suggesting, that go beyond a, a defensive set of rights and start to assert things which require you to impose on other people. So Dan, to, to, build, on, to build on what you're saying, I think, because you're saying that, that the United States is not coming from an argument of China, you're violating human rights and human rights can never be violated, even though that may be what's being said. Really what they're right. saying is that you don't have a good enough reason to violate human rights, that human rights are one of the many factors that we consider when we consider any action. And you don't have a good enough reason 
to violate those human rights as part of your consideration. You know, you're you're incarcerating a million Uyghurs in Xinjiang, and there's no reason for it. There there have only been minor terrorist outbreaks, and you could have done something else. And the 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 ends in this case did not justify the means. But there could potentially be an end that would justify this mean. But yours is not enough. Right. In the utilitarian balance of things, this action is not actually going to make things better. The action that China's taking is not going to make things is not going to make their country better because it's a it's oppressive in other ways. It's too far. And so it's actually going to do more harm than good. But at the end of the day, it does end up being a utilitarian calculation based on what they think is good for the people. Mm -hmm. The people as a whole, which in this case, always it always excludes the interests of the people who are the problem, the interests of the people who, who are in the way of what's good for the majority or for mm -hmm. most people or for the people in power. Mm -hmm. Well, and... And in this article and in China's response, what they do argue is in that utilitarian vein that what they are doing is justified because it's going to result in long-term peace for, for the people. That in the end, there's going to be a net benefit for the Chinese population as a whole because of China's actions. And... If they're right, then from a utilitarian perspective, the West has no argument. It has no rebuttal because, right. because the West has demonstrated time and time again that, that they feel the same way, that there is times where it's okay to incarcerate large numbers of people. There is time when it's okay to kill people in certain situations, even if they haven't actually used violence or, or threatened you. You know, there are situations where the West has been willing to do that and, and been willing to do that in ways that they haven't, you know, apologized for. You know, a great example of that is, uh, once again, going back to World War II, because World War II is one of my favorite things to reference because it's one of the least controversial wars the United States has been involved with. You know, if you look at, you know, if you look at, um, you know, the Civil War, it's very controversial. You look at, like, the Vietnam War, and in most cases, like with the Vietnam War or the Korean War, there's at least as many people who are against the war as those who are for it. But you look at World War II, and it's almost unanimously agreed by people today that what we did in the war was necessary, that this was a justified war. And mm -hmm. and the end result of that is that a large number of people justify things like, you know, our our nuclear bombs that we dropped on Japan. And even before that, the the carpet bombing that we did against Japan, against Japanese cities, which involved I mean it was firebombing these these cities that were mostly made of wood which was a direct attack specifically against Japanese civilians. You know, they weren't targeted attacks like we used in Germany. Because in Germany, we bombed the crap out of Germany. But it was always at military targets, whether that yeah. meant actual military bases or it meant military factories, where there was always the understanding that there would be civilian casualties but the civilian casualties were never the goal, and they always attempted to mitigate 
those civilian casualties. But when uh-huh. we bombed Japan, that wasn't the case. In that yeah, case, there the were many times was. when the civilians were the direct targets. Right. We said, how do we get them to surrender? Yeah. Well, we inflict as much pain as possible. How do we do that? Well, let's find the populous areas made of wood and let's light them on fire. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, frankly, it was sick. And, and you can definitely use a utilitarian perspective, which is what most people who defend those mm-hmm. actions use. They say, mm-hmm. if we had invaded Japan, we probably would have lost a million soldiers versus how many did we lose in the nuclear attacks? You know, what was it? Somewhere around 100,000 Japanese civilians. Let's do the math. That's a 10 to 1 savings in terms of human lives, just across the board. Right. Right. You, yeah. Even for the sake of Japan, you could argue less people died and, this way. And they argue that. They argue that we they would do. have lost a million soldiers and they probably would have lost two, three, four million civilians. Who knows? Especially when the argument was made that every single man, woman, and child was going to pick up a pitchfork and fight to the death because that's what they had seen on these islands, you know, on these islands mm-hmm. that they had been, been fighting on in the Pacific where every single soldier would go down fighting and there were very few who surrendered. So it makes sense that there would right, be this with concern. their strange honor culture at the time and their loyalty to their monarch. Yeah. They were, they were going to fight to the death. You know, there's, there's strong evidence for that utilitarian argument, even if it hadn't been a million soldiers, even if it hadn't been 2 million Japanese civilians, that odds are that more people would have died than how many died in those nuclear attacks. You know, yes, the odds if we of, invaded, more people would have yeah, died. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. There's, there's almost no a, way that less people would have died. Yeah, I, I would, I, and I would guess it'd be many, many times more. That it would not just be, that it wouldn't be just slightly more. It'd be way more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that's how the argument goes. So they go, you've got two options: you can invade or you can firebomb and nuke cities. Which do you pick? One of them, both of them, will end the war, but one of them will cause less harm than the other. And then you start to think. Outside of that strange dichotomy where we've got this strange binary where we have two choices, invade or firebomb and bomb their major cities with, you know, drop some nuclear bombs, some A-bombs. And you go, why are we so intent on getting onto the Japanese mainland? If this is a defensive war, if the goal is to neutralize the threat, isn't the threat of an island nation, their navy, and their airplanes, I'm going to say Air Force, but of course no one calls the Air Force but us. Navy's an old term. Air Force is relatively new and it's our, but Air Force for all intents and purposes. If we can fly over their cities at will and drop bombs, their Air Force is gone. If we can blockade their, their island with our boats, where is their Navy? Oh, it's gone. They, at yeah, that point in the war, they have no Navy. They have no air force. It will be decades before they could pose any kind of a threat to the U.S. in terms of, of actual military might. Nuclear, nuclear weapons, potential nuclear weapons, which they might have had, we didn't know at the time, set aside. But invading them doesn't stop that anyway if they have nuclear weapons. But once you realize that the war has actually already been won, why are we still there? You can go and read interesting reports from the generals at the time, people like Eisenhower, who were like, this war is over. What are we doing? Why are we killing people? 
we we won, declare victory and go home. They they can't leave their island. We won. <laughs> At that point, you really have won the war if your goal is defensive. But we were absolutely committed to not just having them surrender, which there were a lot of indications they were willing to do, but have them surrender unconditionally. And that was what we were pushing for. You mm-hmm. can get into the, the what the generals wrote about it at the time and, and the the actual reports and things from the ground and the politics behind it, why the why the politicians were determined to get absolute surrender, whereas a lot of the generals were like, This is this is over. This fight's already over. What do you mean invade? Why are we invading? Why would we drop these bombs? And uh once you start to see the the situation for what it is, that we don't have to choose either of these options, we can go home and we can deploy these forces to go do other things, right? We can send the soldiers home. We can go do other things. And there's, there is no threat here anymore. That really begins to change things. You realize that you've been, you're forced to choose between A and B because that's the only way it, may, it justifies B. It's the only way it justifies these firebombs. It's the only way you can look back and, and feel like we made the right call. And uh, in, in the, just to kind of finish the story, since we're going down it, um, we end up accepting less than unconditional surrender anyway because public opinion starts to turn, partially because public opinion starts to turn against us. And uh, what we had wanted was for the king to step down, to get rid of the monarchy. And uh, we ended up accepting that they didn't have to do that. But then it happened anyway. And there were some, some complex events that happened as the war ended, where we ended up getting what we wanted, but not by forcing it, per se. And uh, and anyway, it... it Wars are complicated, and they're almost <laughs> never what they look like, and they're ne- they are literally never what they're described in several paragraphs in a history book. Well, and Dan, you bring up an excellent point that that utilitarianism is very often used in in these extreme option A or option B scenarios, where you have a dichotomy, you have two choices. And and they're very reminiscent of of these hypothetical scenarios that that are largely based off of the uh, Saw movie franchise, where <laughs> where you're in a room and you have a gun and there's another person in the room and you have two options. Option one is you shoot the other person in the room, and option two is you both get killed, which is obviously disturbing. But it's a but it's a mental exercise that's used very often to discuss utilitarianism because the argument is made that if you don't shoot the other person, then two people die instead of one, including the person that you were going to shoot. And so shooting the person is, from a utilitarian perspective, always the right answer. It's always the and right you're answer. Saving someone's exactly. life. Exactly. It happens to be your own. And maybe the option is you can shoot yourself, but usually it's not. Usually it's not. And usually in the real world, it's not either. The problem is, well, there's there's several problems. But one of the main problems that Dan's pointing out here is that utilitarianism is often used to hold up false dichotomies. Where the, the argument yeah, is used choices. that you are in a room and you have to shoot someone or you both die. but in the real world, that's never the case. That's never the case because usually what's happening is you're in a room and you have to shoot the person or you both die or 17 other options. But yeah. you only <laughs> discuss those two. 
you know, Dan talked about, Dan talked about, you know, World War II where we had other options. You know, blockade was an option. There, there were more options. There were definitely more options and you could go into discussing them because as Dan said, war is complicated and you'll be able to find that time and time again. You know, China is complaining about terrorism and extremism. There are more options than internment camps to deal with it. They speak as if either they inter, they they arrest millions yeah. of people, or they do nothing. You know, right. after they cut it out at the root, or they don't. After you know the the attack on the World Trade Center, the United States talked, especially in in you know the executive branch, they talked about how they have to take the gloves off or do nothing. And so they chose to take the gloves off, and that resulted in many human rights abuses that more often than not were ineffective, that did nothing. Right. Um, same with the Japanese internment camps. You know, Japan invades the United States, and the argument is made that the only way to protect our freedom and ensure our safety is by arresting all of those with Japanese descent, and that was obviously – not the case. And you can go back and back and back. You look at the creation of the United States Constitution, and the argument was made that we had two options. Option one is to accept slavery. Option two is the entire the system falls fails. apart, yeah. and we become re we get reconquered by Great Britain. You know, that's what they were afraid of, is that they would never be able to survive without <laughs> this Constitution. And that is just far from the truth. There were many, many options. One of the simplest options would be the North and the South separating then, not during the Civil War, but then in the 1700s and creating two countries, one of those countries where they actually allow freedom and allow slaves who escape from the South right. to have freedom in the North. And that's something that could have happened that could have definitely changed the history of the United States. But the problem with utilitarianism is that more often than not, the end result of utilitarianism is that you shoot someone in that room when you never actually had to. And that is by far the saddest thing about utilitarian arguments is that in the real world, that's what happens time and time again, is that you pull the trigger thinking it's your only option. And then once you pull that trigger, it's almost impossible for you to realize that, that, that there were other options because realizing that is accepting the fact that you murdered an innocent person for no reason. And it's something that no one wants to admit to on a personal scale. And it's something people don't want to admit to on a national scale, which is why we fight so hard for our utilitarian binary perspective. Yes, uh, you're, you're absolutely right that there is some, there is some self-deception involved in this in which we don't want to confront, uh, we don't want to confront the evils that we have committed. And on an individual level, when you look back at your own past, you often put it into a two-choice kind of thing. You you can see you can see the thing that you thought about doing, and you can see the thing that you did. This is a, one of the problems with uh, with studying history in general. People do this all the time, and it's a and it's a mistake. It's something. It seems to be natural to us. I know there's a term for it and I, that I can't recall. But the idea is basically this: that you that once history has happened, once something has happened, you see it as a kind of inevitability. You see it as something which was which was 
going to happen for it to work out the way it did and to change anything is to, as the case of the Constitution is, is the perfect example. Do you want to ruin America or do you want to accept slavery? Is, is ultimately the kind of two-dimensional way that we view it. And as you said, there are a thousand other options. There are ways that you can negotiate it. And perhaps if they had held the line, the South, perhaps even the South would have come around. It's just possible. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's likely or anything. I'm not saying this is what would have happened. But you never know what you are losing by giving up your principles and by doing things that you know that are wrong for the sake of some greater good later that may or may not materialize. You never know. I was, I was talking to my wife one day and we were, we were in a tough situation. I don't even remember the details of the situation. Uh, something had happened. It was probably our fault. And anyway, it was, we were writing an email to somebody and it was remarkably uncomfortable. Uh, and the wording had to be, I felt like the wording had to be just right. And I was thinking about, you know, the, whether or not some things should be said or should be left out. How do we, the, there was a strong uh, desire to deceive whoever the recipient was. I don't remember, I, I don't know how I don't remember the context, but I remember this, these details so well. But, it, but, but to, I had to an white lie to sugarcoat it. To white lie to sugarcoat it, to leave a few things out to make us yeah. uh, less culpable or, or whatever it may mm-hmm. have been. And it occurred to me, after we worked at it for a while, um, and we had it all on paper, and we were fully honest, it occurred to me that anything that has to be said can be said. And there's, there's a way in which anything that should be said, rather, can be said. In that we often look at something, we look at these moments where we can hold our hold the things that we know are true, hold the, the moral ground that we, that our conscious, that our conscience dictates we should do. And we say, I can't do that because. But so often, if you would look at it and avoid getting this into your mindset of, well, if I do that, then this will happen. You don't know the future. You don't know how things are going to play out. You don't, you aren't able to make those kind of calls. You could not say, back when people were deciding to firebomb and drop A-bombs on, the, on Japan, that this will result in their surrender. And you could not say that it would be better than the alternatives. What you can say is that there are things that you know to be true. There are certain principles that you hold, which, as you live them, have played out in your life in a way that has led your life to be better, happier, more fulfilling, and for you to be more effective. And that by living those principles here, you are most likely to succeed in the future. These are, these are patterns we see in life, right? These are things but the which, by living an experience, we conclude that things like, <laughs> things like honesty of the best, best policy is a good example of a trite way to say one of these ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in some ways, it's a... I've heard it described as an act of faith in some sense in the future. Um, I don't know that I care for that way of framing it, but there is certainly something about, especially since often the evidence that you have is that holding to your principles will bring about the best outcome. That is the evidence in front of you. The temptation, the, the, the threat, the fear, often there's fear involved in these compromises, is that if you do that, things won't work out and that you need to take control. 
-hmm. when you're afraid you want to seize power you want to exercise that power in the way that can try and guarantee the future in ways that that are often ineffective <laughs> they're often ineffective they often don't work you can't guarantee the future you should act on those principles and let it play out it will be better it will be better and it, at the very least it will be better for you It'll be better for you and the people you care about if you live according to the dictates of your conscience. if you live the things that you know you should do and the patterns that you've seen that work and that are moral and that are effective in the world. And to discard those in times of emergency is a mistake. It's a mistake and you will regret it or you will lie to yourself and create some kind of binary like we've been discussing that tries to make you look good, look like you made the decision you had to when you didn't have to make that decision. And I reject anyone who tells me they had to make that decision uh, that in the circumstance that was all they could do and it was contrary to what they believed, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I've read too many people, people like Viktor Frankl in A Man's Search for Meaning, who was in a Jewish concentration camp, who watched people better than him make sacrifices and make the right calls and be good in the most disastrous circumstances and watched what it did for people. There are too many examples, people like Gandhi, people who have taken the moral high ground in life. And it plays out to their favor in one way or another. It plays out to the good in one way or another. You cannot get away with that excuse. I, I do not accept your justification. I do not accept the binary. I don't think you had to do that. And you can at least walk out of there, assuming the worst situation. You're in a situation where there's the fat man on the railroad. <laughs> what is the classic, silly, moral? There's a train oh, coming and the, you can the push the guy. Problem? You can push the guy in front of the trolley problem thing. Where you can change tracks <laughs> to kill five people instead of one. Instead of one. And then you can complicate it by saying the one is someone you know, mm -hmm. someone you love. Yeah, and it goes on and on. Right. I don't you know can, what you're yeah, talking variation. about with the fat man, but. You push, you can stop the trolley that's going to run over five people. By pushing someone onto the track. Oh, I haven't heard that version. That's that's a variation on it. This one, obviously, this is even more active than just changing the tracks. There's something. Yeah, there's something. Aggressive. It's more violent. Right. Each of these variations tries to add some kind of nuance to it, but I I reject them categorically. In that, if someone else kills someone, that's on them, <laughs> and that's not on me, and I won't let that be on me. I'm not going to assume responsibility for someone's death unjustly mm -hmm. I, I i refuse to take that responsibility to to kill someone like that who doesn't deserve it and and as you said it's never that simple the trolley problem is a is a, the trolley problem these these saw like i'd never thought of them that way that's exactly what they are i've never seen the saw movies but I. I know enough about but them i've to... had but i've had probably five dozen conversations that revolve <laughs> that around these scenarios <laughs> yeah it, it's fitting um those things uh, you do not determine your moral compass by those problems it's it's <laughs> it's a mistake <laughs> the well and, and dan i, I, I want to build on it because because you're talking about outcomes that's exactly what utilitarianism is about utilitarianism is about achieving the best possible outcome for the most number of people you know we're trying to make things better generally you know 
the mm-hmm. utility of it. Right. And that's the predicated on outcomes. Utilitarianism relies on your actions resulting in the best outcomes. Because if they don't result in the best outcomes, then they were a complete waste and they weren't living up to utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. And this is this is kind of an inherent problem and a really fantastic thing about utilitarianism is that at any given moment, you can look at where you are now and say, because of the choices I made, I'm better off, and therefore, even though those choices were morally wrong, they're justified by the fact that, hypothetically, I could have been worse off. You know what I mean? The United States says, because of what we did, and we'll never know for sure, but it's very likely that because of what we did, less people died, and therefore, we're justified because of this outcome. But in reality, there's no way of knowing especially at the time, what kind of outcome you're going to have. People have been trying to control outcomes since the beginning of the world, and people time and time again have failed. You look at the Constitution. The founders who wrote that Constitution had no idea it was going to end up the way it has today, and they never wanted that. That was never their vision. And to say this outcome is... is is the result of that is is true, but it's not because this is the outcome they wanted. They couldn't control right. what happened. All they can control is what they choose to do in that moment. And that is probably the fundamental problem with utilitarianism is that we cannot control outcomes. We have never been able to, and we never will. You know, you look at totalitarian states where they try to, you look at North Korea, where they try to control everyone's outcomes and take so many liberties to do so, both metaphorically and literally. And yet they can't. And yet they time and time again fail to do so, even when you control every aspect of people's lives as much as any nation can, it's still not enough to truly control those people. And that's something that we see time and time again. And that's why the only way to act justly is to have it to is to act based on moral principles in the moment without regard to utilitarianism that when you're in that room and your option is point that gun at someone else and pull the trigger or die the only just option the only realistic option even in that extreme scenario is to not pull the trigger and by by all means look for other options but even in the extreme scenario where there are no other options the only just action is to do nothing is to is right. to is to not make that concession is to is is to accept the idea that there is such a thing as a necessary evil the line that there is a necessary evil which which once again stems from the founding fathers and this may this may offend some people but what do you do the line <laughs> that that government is a necessary evil is one i wholeheartedly do not believe in I do not believe that there is such a thing as a necessary evil. I think that evil exists, but that does not mean it's necessary. And the problem with the argument necessary evil is that it's not saying that other people are evil and that's unfortunate. They're saying we must participate in this evil because it is necessary. 
And that is a truly disturbing line of thought and is always the end result of utilitarianism, which is why we fight against it so hard, because utilitarianism historically and today has always been used to justify evil. And that is its purpose, because if it was just talking about choosing the right thing anyways, you wouldn't need utilitarianism. There wouldn't need to be the argument for the greater good. The whole point of the argument of a greater good is it's to justify a smaller bad. That is the purpose of utilitarianism, is to justify... What they they would like to think is a smaller bad. Is to justify something that at least someone believes is morally unjust. Is something wrong in this moment that will be right later on? And that is what's so reprehensible about utilitarianism, whether it's China justifying, you know, internment camps, or if it's the United States justifying waterboarding and holding suspected terrorists without trial or anything. You know, these are just examples of what that means in the real world, how it is just a justification for evil. Yes, it's... It's either good for everybody, in which case it's fine. In which case you never have to justify it. And you never have to justify it. Or it's good for some people at the expense of others, in which case you have to have a justification. And our modern court system weighs the balance of those things and says, has the government met the standard necessary to show that this will be good for society, or that this is worth it, or that this, that this passes the bar needed to set aside these natural rights, to set aside these things and sacrifice this person in this way for other people. And that bar gets lower and lower every year. It gets lower and lower. There is no bar there. Nothing justifies it. Nothing justifies it. You do not cross that line. You do not sacrifice one person for other people Unless they are acting unjustly, that's, that's when you can cross that line. That's when you can say you can set aside concern for their rights because it's defensive. And only in those circumstances. I, as you were talking about it, the, uh, the way that people describe society, there, there is something inherently authoritarian about utilitarianism. It assumes that you know things you can't know. It assumes that you have the power to act in ways that create the circumstances that would be ideal. You, no one has that information. And, if if you and no one has that level of that, control, and no one has that level of control, right? Right. No one should be trusted with the power uh, to do that kind of thing. And you can see that by just consulting any government that uses that rhetoric. <laughs> like, in in what circumstances has utilitarianism been cited where it was justified? I would love to hear if you, if you're listening to this episode and you have an example, please comment on it, throw it on YouTube or Facebook or email us or something. I would love to talk about it. I want to see your best example of when utilitarianism you think triumphed over or, or demonstrated that, that in this case you should act from a utilitarian perspective. Cause I don't think there is any such case. I think there's a fundamental assumption you need if you want to act morally in the world. And it's that everybody is an actor who acts for their own purposes. And that to act, that to take that agency from them, the the capacity in them to act according to the things they know and want, is evil. 
except to the degree that they are imposing themselves on others, right? In those circumstances, you can, you can hinder them. As I've said over and over again, in defensive circumstances, you have an exception. If they are acting unjustly, you can justly bring violence against them and force against them. But without those circumstances, someone can act for themselves. They can work out their own path in the world to the degree that they are capable of. And you can help them, certainly. Please help them. Please befriend them. Please cooperate with them, right? The most of most of life is cooperation. Most of what you do, every exchange you have, every interaction with a friend, a family member, a store, a, a business, all of these are cooperative acts. All of these are people working together to make each other's lives better in exchange for other things and, and, and in their pursuit of happiness. All of that is a, that's a vast scope of human action that is moral, mm-hmm. that is, that is free, that is moral, that is good, that creates mutual benefits. In most cases, people can be jerks socially, right? <laughs> but in so many of the cases, so many of your daily interactions are for your good and for the good of the people you're interacting with. Mm-hmm. The key to those is that there's no compulsion. There's no violence. Yeah. There's yeah, no force. You can, you can there's... act towards the greater good. Yes, it's, please it's, do. Exactly. And, and it's it's when you start – do... So when you're saying they need to act for the greater good mm-hmm. and they're not, therefore mm-hmm. we're going to force them. Or we this need to do this – questionable thing for the greater good that's when it becomes a problem when you say hey i'm going to work on on getting a safe drinking water for communities that don't have it for the greater good that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about utilitarianism right because that's not utilitarianism it's simply seeing someone who's struggling and helping you know what i mean helping (laughs) people helping people be better and have more things is not utilitarianism. Utilitarianism is about a justification. It's about a balancing act. And there's no balancing act when it comes to to safe drinking water. There's just the clear good thing and then the will to act. <laughs> right. And we should do that good thing. And everyone and everyone can cooperate on that and work that out. I, I loved what you said about how if you have 100% agreement, there's no need for the violence or coercion at all. And if you don't have 100% agreement, then it's at some people's expense for the benefit of others. And that's, that should be it should, written it should in big letters in every government book ever, every pol- political theory book in every, in every, because it, it reveals the lie that through government, we cooperate together. Mm-hmm. No, through government, we impose yeah through on government people. we force and that's and that's how it's meant to be through government we that, force that people to stop killing through government we force people yes. to stop stealing and that's how it's supposed to be that's the system is this is an instrument of force that we're using to fight force the problem is when yes. you take it and apply it to something else yes when when a politician it's biden recently starts calling for unity and cooperate, which, which by which I implies some cooperation. I think, what on earth are you talking about? If, I mean, if you would like to start a charity or something, that would be awesome. I'm, I'm all for that, right? And the people who support that cause and those, those things can, can get behind it, right? But if, if what he means by unity is we need to get in line to compel some people to do some things for the benefit of others, I'm really confused by the word unity. And I've, I hear this from other people too, the word cooperation being thrown around as if they'll say things like, without, the, without a strong, robust political system and with some shared culture and things, 
we can't cooperate together. What are you talking about? I cooperate with people all day, every day. It's really easy. It's easy because so most of the time it's mutually beneficial. And when it's not, I can leave, right? I can go cooperate with someone else. Uh, the market is a competition to see who can cooperate with each other best. You want to talk about cooperation? Why are we talking about government, which is, as Brad said, specifically designed to force things? And when it is necessary, it is just. And when it is not necessary, it is evil. And that is a, that's a distinction that is very important and is often lost. Yeah, we addressed in the double think idea that, that somewhere in here, there has been a serious twist mm -hmm. about the purpose of mm -hmm. and the tools at the, at the disposal of government. Yeah, and, and where does that leave us? And, and language definitely is a factor, and it's something that that we see when looking at these articles written from a Chinese perspective. Is that <laughs> because of this translation, it actually helps clarify things. Hearing it spoken right. of in these different words is is refreshing. It's nice. Right. I mean, as as China talks, they they're they're right. They're pointing out true hypocrisy in the way the United States and other Western countries view human rights, because we do use them conditionally. We don't use them honestly. And, and they're absolutely right to point that out and to point out that they're not that different from us in terms of how we've used it and how they've used it. The real issue here is that they disagree on how to use it. You know what I mean? And on, yeah, their utilitarian calculation is different. It's different, exactly. Yeah. And They're willing to pay more upfront for long-term benefit of, of completely rooting out this problem. Yeah. They're willing to sacrifice more human lives and human misery right now for the, the long-term peace, which, like we said, is, it can be justified by utilitarianism. And so, so it's nice to, to look at this because there is, there is definitely something to be gained from this by looking at this hypocrisy within the United States and saying, what do we truly believe in? Because if it is utilitarianism, then we've got some serious problems. And I think, I think people do need to consider within yourself, what is it that you believe in? Is it truly the greater good or is it something else? Are there, or is it something else? Are there moral principles that are worth sacrificing outcomes for because as dan said more often than not the moral principles will lead you to the better outcomes but you'll never know that for sure because you'll never know the outcomes yeah as long as you you're focused on outcomes then then there's often a chance for utilitarianism and choosing the temporary evil but if you believe in moral principles if you have a moral absolute then the outcomes no longer matter. And, and we think that needs to be looked at and needs to be considered on a personal scale and on a national scale. So thank you for, uh, for sticking with us as we defended moral absolutism. Yes. Yes. The same, that seems so extreme, Brad. Moral absolutism. It is Why extreme. are you an absolutist? <laughs> it is. It is. That's, the, that's one of the things in which I disagree with many people who will defend absolute moral principles on. They will say, Yes, you need to live these moral principles, even though it will cost you. And I think, no, I need to live these moral principles because I want to have a full life. Yeah, in the end, Fullest the moral life principles I can. will benefit you. And that's yes. something that we've seen historically. Yes, the moral principles are not contrary to my own good. 
and my own fulfillment. They are precisely the means to achieve that fulfillment, and to discard them is to act contrary to what would actually fulfill my life and, and satisfy me. In the in the often in the long run, right? Often what we're looking at is short term gains sacrificing long term, right? That's the that is kind of in some ways a fundamental temptation to mankind, a, a fundamental challenge that you face. Are you willing to put off temporary fleeting pleasure for long term satisfaction? Are you are you willing to spend the time to make a podcast like this and the sacrifice up front, uh, you know, for years even to to before there's some real reward and payoff for it and you can you can reap the satisfaction of what you've done that is a that is a fundamental challenge of mankind but that's so often if what we're looking at is the immediate consequences we will end up sacrificing the long-term consequences and often even the immediate consequences because those things are not uh, to act contrary to our principles is to is to reject that they are the path to a satisfying life which i think they are i agree All right. With that, thank you for listening. This has been episode 48 of the Rethinking Politics podcast. Check us out on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, You can go to our website at www.rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com. I don't know why I always throw the www in there. (laughs) Thus it is. Uh, You can send us us your examples of utilitarianism in your personal life or on a large scale that you, you think are justified love to to debate some of those with you talk over some of the wars especially and things and with that we'll see you next week thanks for listening guys 